So this morning, uh, John chapter 9, it's really the prologue for the whole ninth chapter. And I was going to say I'm sorry, but I really I'm not. Um, but at the beginning of the week, I always have these great expectations of covering a large text. And I thought, well, I'm going to cover John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. And as the week went on, as the end of the week came on, and, and Sunday's coming, and so I thought, well, no, I'm not going to be able to cover 12 verses, so I'll cover the first seven. And then finally yesterday, I realized, no, I'll cover the first three. And so we'll see how that, that goes this morning. But I do trust it will be meaningful for you. And it's really kind of like the prologue. So, so I'm going to read the first seven verses so you have the whole story uh, before your mind. And then we'll just look at the first three uh, this morning. So John chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 7. And God's Word reads, As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Uh, let us pray. Lord, I, I pray that um, as we look at this text um, and as we engage with this story this morning, um, Lord, I just pray that, uh, Lord, that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts. There's so many things. Your word is unending. There's so many things we could say and so many places we could go. Lord, would you choose only the best things for us here this morning? I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I've titled this A, 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 world, a world of Darkness. A world of darkness. We have five basic or, or five senses, sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. Which of these do you value the greatest? It's really an unfair question, is it not? Because unless you're missing one of these basic senses, this is probably an unanswerable question. In our text here this morning that is before us, we are introduced to a man who is born blind from birth. He was always blind. He has never seen. He never saw a sunrise or a sunset. He never saw an ocean or a mountain. He never saw the beauty of flowers, of grass, or of trees. He never saw a little puppy or a kitten. He never saw the variety of birds. He never saw the face of his mother or of his father. He never even saw his own face. He never saw the smile on the face of a baby. He never saw the face of someone he loved. He never saw fresh fruit or a well-grilled steak. The only thing he ever saw was nothing. The only thing he ever saw was darkness. How do you explain to a person born blind the difference between a world of darkness in a world of light. 
this story of a man born blind, this is now the sixth of the seven signs in the Gospel of John. John is a writer who likes to incorporate in his writings numerical significance with allegory intertwined with actual events to create deep and challenging spiritual meaning. Seven is the number of perfection, of wholeness, of completeness. We will see the number seven work itself out in the 11th chapter of John's Gospel as John raises his friend Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Four is the number of man. Four is the number of the earth. Four represents the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth. Four is an earthly number. Seven is a heavenly number. As Jesus raises the earthly man from the dead, He signifies He, Jesus, is not earthly, but divine. A man who has been dead and is rotting back into the earth from which he has come is restored back to life, to wholeness, to completeness, to a form of perfection that can only come to those who believe. Signs. Attesting miracles. John records seven of them. And so this morning, again, I want to remind you of what you're already quite familiar with. And that is the purpose statement for John's Gospel. Every, all 66 books of the Bible, every one of them has a purpose. Sometimes they don't spell it out clearly as John does, but John clearly writes what his purpose was. It's the so that, if you will. This is why he wrote his Gospel. In John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, John writes this. He says, Therefore, as he concludes his letter, therefore many other signs, or testing miracles if you like, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, not written in this letter, but these have been written, why? So that, here comes our purpose, so that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in His name, you may have life. That's what John says, the whole purpose, his whole motive. And I find it somewhat kind of ironic when some people talk about, well, the Bible is, is a biased letter, it's a biased book. Yeah, it is. That is true. No doubt about it. And John is very clear on his, his point. And so everything he writes about points to this purpose. And that is to prove to you, to prove to me that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' middle name. It's Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in Jesus as the Messiah, as your Savior, you can have life in His name. Eternal life in His name. So he says many more signs and miracles. John says he could have been recorded. Jesus done many, many different miracles, many different signs. In fact, he goes on in the 21st chapter, and he says, if I was going to write them all down, I suppose the whole world wouldn't contain all of them. But John is basically saying, if seven signs, the number of perfection, won't convince you that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, then the eighth sign probably won't either. You know, it's always interesting when you talk to somebody who, who doesn't believe. If someone who, either they call themselves agnostic or atheist or, or 
something in between. Um, and you say, well, what would it take for you to believe that there is a God? Or what would it take for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ? And it's interesting because uh, on what they have to say. And it's always just one more thing, isn't it? If I could just have this happen, or if, if, this, if this would happen. I remember listening to a conversation where someone said, you know, if I could just see, if I could just see, not somebody who said they had a backache and then they were healed. Not just somebody who says that, oh, you know, I had this condition or that condition, and it could be subjective to the, to the doctor's treatments. Not nothing like that. If I could literally see someone who was born without an arm, all of a sudden that arm would just start growing. Then I would believe. Well, I doubt it. I doubt it. Our biblical text is full of those who've seen something very similar, and yet they did or have not believed. We find them in our text here this morning. Actually, we'll get there next week. But in the words of Jesus, to the rich man who found himself in hell, right, and said, Lazarus, different Lazarus, Lazarus, if you could just, God, if you could just send Lazarus back from the dead, go back and warn my brothers that, wow, you know what, this stuff about heaven and hell and God and no God, this stuff is for real. Go warn my brothers. What does God say? To the rich man. He says, nah. They got Moses and the prophets. They got the word of God. They have the Bible in essence, right? If they're not going to believe that, nor are they going to believe somebody who comes back from the dead. You see, many have missed and continue to miss the signs of Jesus, the Christ among them, the Christ among us. Many have also missed the sign of Jesus' first coming, right? The first advent, right? Many have missed that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so this morning, we see that, that many missed Jesus' first coming as this little baby wrapped in, in cloths and lying in a manger. We love the Christmas story. Many have missed that sign. And many have missed when Jesus was walking among them. Those are the two very, very big signs that we see throughout the biblical text. And then there's a third, is there not? There's a third, and that's why I just want to, want to briefly go to here this morning. I want to remind you of another sign, and it is the end, it is the end of the age. Right? So you had the, the first advent, and you got this middle stuff of Jesus' life on earth, and then Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, and now we're waiting for that second advent, just as others were. And so I want to I just briefly, uh, no eye rolling, but I want to just briefly go to Matthew 24. Just, just briefly to, to set up this. Like I said, this is a prologue. So just to set this up, the ninth chapter, and where John is now going in his gospel. So in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, the first couple verses, it says this, so Jesus came out of the temple, right? So Jesus comes out of the temple where he often found himself, and he's there with his disciples, and his disciples walk out of the buildings, and maybe they were like me. Maybe they were just an old construction guy like me, and I like buildings, I like notice these things, and, and, and they were like, wow, look at that, Jesus, look at the temple. Look at all these amazing buildings, right? Have you ever been to Vegas? Don't, don't answer that. I mean, you went there on business, right? Um, well, unfortunately, anyways, but I've been there a few times, and yes, it was always because of business, but I'm always amazed walking around looking at those amazing buildings. It's like people actually built these things in the middle of the desert. 
First, what were they thinking? And then it's just like, wow. But So that's kind of what the disciples did. They walk on, they, they look at all these, these buildings. And they say, Jesus, look at these buildings. Jesus is like, oh, wow, you're impressed by those buildings, are you? Well, I tell you what, the time is coming when not a single shingle will be on the roof. Not a single piece of siding will be on the side of the house. Not a single piece of drywall will be left intact. Not a single cabinet will be left hanging on the wall. Not a single brick will be laid on top of each other. It will all come down. It will all be dismantled, if you will. And so the disciples, uh, when they go back up to the Mount of Olives, where they often found themselves, I call it their seminary classroom, because here it was just Jesus and the guys. And they're sitting up on the Mount of Olives, and, and now that they're in their little classroom, an exclusive little classroom, they tell Jesus, they ask him what? They say this in, in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign? See, here we go. What will be the sign? There's the third one now, the birth, the life of Jesus among us, and, and, and that he really is the Messiah, and now the end of, of, the, of the age. When will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And so Jesus said to them, first up, see to it that no one misleads you. First and foremost, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars. Oh, yeah, that's, we do. You will hear rumors of wars. Yeah, we do that. See that no, that you are not frightened, there's no reason to be frightened, for these things must take place. But that is not the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against nation, a kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famine and earthquakes. We've seen it all. But these are merely the beginnings of birth pains. Get ready to take your wife to the hospital. She's going to give birth, right? I mean, these are the beginning of the birth pains. It's not the birth yet. These are only the beginnings. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Nothing new that we haven't seen so far, right? At that time, many will fall away. Again, nothing new. And will betray one another. Nothing new. Hate one another. Nothing new. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Nothing new. Because lawlessness has increased, people's love will grow cold, Nothing new, but the one who endures to the end, right out of Revelation, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, that's what Jesus, then he says this. Verse 6, 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world. The whole world can be, tra can be, can be translated as the inhabited nations the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. There's many people groups that haven't heard, but I'm not so sure that there's inhabited nations that haven't heard. So if anything is left, it is this peace. So what am I saying to you this morning? What does this have to do with a blind man? We'll get there. But what I'm saying to you this morning, look, so many folks, especially in a time such as this, where you see COVID, where you see racial unrest, where you see rioting, where you see all this craziness, where you see this political climate that we find ourselves in, instantly, just like when something we love is missing, instantly we think about, whoa, 
Is this a sign of the end of the times? Well, I'm here to tell you, friends, those signs have all been completed. We're just waiting now for the actual return of Christ. But what I want to tell you this morning is I always find it interesting that people are worried about when is the end of the world coming? I I talked about myself personally at the beginning, my sister-in-law. Her end of the world already came, did it not? Right? Do you know if you will walk out of this building today, you do not have a guarantee. You don't have a guarantee for tomorrow. Why are you worried about the end of the world? (laughs) I always find it fascinating. But nonetheless, we're people, and I know we do these things, and, and we find it fascinating. But I want to ask you this morning, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you? Well, we could, any single one of us, our life could be required of us now. Okay, we're still here. Maybe, maybe now. I'm not here to cause fear. Right? Unless you haven't surrendered, then you do need to be fearful. But for us, there's a hope, there's a joy, there's that longing, as Kenny was, led that last song, that is there. But I'm preaching a sermon I didn't plan for. Let's move on. Many have missed. So there's that sign. So the sign of the birth, the sign of Jesus' life, not the sign of the end of the age, but let's go back to Jesus' life here on earth. Many have missed and continue to miss the signs that John points out in his gospel. And urgency is of the essence. Because Jesus says in verse 4, next Sunday, Jesus says in verse 4, night is coming. Night is always related to death in the biblical text. Night is coming. So the ninth chapter of John turns a corner, though, to this theme of light, or I should say continues the theme of light, but turns a corner on how he applies this theme of light. See, in verse 5 of of our text here this morning, uh, he says that while I'm in the world, Jesus says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And then in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 1246, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. You see, John started out his gospel with this theme of of light. In John chapter 1, verse 4, he says that in him, in Jesus, was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, did not consume it, did not overtake it. Verse 9, there was a true light, which coming into the world enlightens, enlightens every man, he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, there's three things I want you to notice. Number one, that John is writing here, says that Jesus has come into the world to enlighten, to shine his light on everyone, on every single person has that light shone upon them. And then he says, the next thing he says, okay, the world, those out there often equated as Gentiles, or we could say non-Jewish people, all those folks out there in our day and age today be Christians, all those out there, they didn't believe. They didn't see. They didn't know him. They didn't recognize him. But, But John also says that Jesus came to his own people, to his own people, 
to his own Franschaft, a good German word for you, to his own Franschaft, to his own family. And his family, they did not receive him. See, they recognized him, but they did not see him. So the first eight chapters of the Gospel of John is for those who should have recognized him, those who should have recognized the signs, but they did not recognize him. They did not receive him. And now here in this ninth chapter, as we're turning a corner in the Gospel of John, John, Jesus opens up his beam of light, if you will, to illuminate all. He opens the eyes of the blind. Do you see? Do you understand? Are you following? It is as simple as this. Go out into the woods, go out into the field, go out into your yard, flip over a log, flip over a board. What happens? Those little critters under there, they go scattering. And yet what's amazing is, you let the log flipped over, this earth that is moist and damp and void of anything living that's meaningful, you leave it exposed to the light, and new life begins to form, does it not? New life emerges from underneath that log that is now exposed to the light. And so this leaves us with a question, does it not? Who or what determines how anything or anyone receives or responds to the light, right? How, how does that happen? Here we have the bugs that run from the light. We've got the plant that stretches up and continues to grow up towards the light. We got some of those who readily receive the gospel message of Christ, of Jesus. We got others who run and reject it. What gives? Well, those are some unanswerable questions, but this is where we're going to go this morning in these three verses. We're going to look at the blindness in verse 1 of the human condition. The blindness of the human condition. In verse 2, we're going to look at the cause of the human condition. And I know those aren't really nice titles, but I couldn't come up with anything nicer or anything that was more catchy. Verse 2 is the cause of the human condition. And then in verse 3 is what I really want to hone in on. Uh, first one and two, but verse three. But the verse three is going to be the purpose, the purpose of the human condition. And so since I rambled there a little bit, let me give them to you again. The blindness of the human condition, verse one. The cause of the human condition, verse two. The purpose of the human condition, verse three. So verse one, we see here, um, we see here in verse one that as Jesus passed by. See, this is an interesting thing, right? So here Jesus comes out of this temple, if you remember last week, and they're trying to get ready to stone him. They're getting ready to kill him. They're getting ready to string him up. They're getting ready to put him on the lecture chair, whatever means you want to talk about there, but they're getting ready to stone him. And he ventures outside the temple. And as he goes along, I don't know about you, but I'd be kind of running. But as Jesus goes along, he passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. Now this man John is very pointed to say this man was blind right from birth. This man did not lose his sight. Uh, this man was born blind from birth. And so I want to remind you as I continue to try to draw some analogies to this, I want to remind you of, of, of Isaiah 53, of the suffering servant as we often think about it. 
Right? And if you want to go back, you can read Isaiah 53. But here we talk about, about a man, about this suffering servant who took on behalf of, we see him as Jesus, who took upon himself of what others deserved. And by this, he set those free, took the punishment for them, right? And the reason for this, Isaiah 56, verse 6, is because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. There's not a sheep out there who has followed the shepherd. Every single sheep has jumped the fence. <laughs> Every single sheep has wandered off. Not a single one has stayed put. Romans 3.11, as we just follow this a little bit through the text. Romans 3.11, there is none who understands. There's no one who seeks God. No one seeks God. 3.23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. 5.12, through one man, Adam, I want to have a chat with him. Through one man, sin entered into the world and death because of that sin. And so death is spread to all because all have sinned. See, this is the blindness of our human condition. We are born into sin. We are born blind. We cannot see. We don't even know how to see. We don't even know how to seek. We cannot see Jesus. We cannot seek Jesus. We cannot find Jesus. We cannot see, seek, or find, right? We are groping around in the dark. Here is a man born blind. He didn't even know what light looked like. He didn't even recognize it. How could he? He had never seen anything his whole life. This is, this is the blindness of our human condition. This is the blindness. We can't even see straight. We can't even see correctly. The second is the cause of the human condition. This is interesting. Uh, verse 2. And his disciples, you got to love these guys. His disciples said, Rabbi, teacher, professor, instruct me, teach me, is what they're saying, who sinned. Okay, you could just stop right there, right? You could just say, okay, Jesus, who sinned? Fair enough question. But no, they got they to impute some of their knowledge upon Jesus and say, these are your two options, Jesus. Obviously, this man sinned or his parents Right? I mean, think about that. Either this man sinned or his parents. And that was the thought of the day. That was the thought of the day. And obviously we could go to Exodus. I believe it's Exodus uh, where it says that the, the sins of the father are passed on to the fourth and the fifth generation. This is some of the line of thinking that they had. And yet we could also go to Luke maybe where he talks about uh, where the people were all upset because the Galileans who, who's who were killed, their blood was mingled with the Jewish sacrifices. And Jesus says, ah, just because these people were killed and their blood mingled with their sacrifices, just because these weren't mean, doesn't mean that they are any better than those who died, right? So there's nothing that a person did that made them any worse or any better than the next. Paul, right? Remember when he was bitten by a snake and the people on the island says, oh, Paul, you are a sinner. You're going to die. And then he didn't die from the snake bite. Then they realized that Paul's God is the one they are searching for and looking for. And so they're saying, who sinned, Jesus? You know, they talk about, the, uh, uh, um, about some that are even born from, from birth as, 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 as they sinned within the womb. There was all kinds of crazy ways of thinking the parents sinned in the conception of the child and some of those things. But, but none of those is what we're going to see as Jesus says, that's not the cause of the human condition. Now, let me remind you, that there is cause for our human condition as far as when it does lead to some bad things happening to our life. 
If I was one who turned to drinking as a drunkard and went out and either abused my family, killed somebody on the road, if I was a, did drugs or was gambling addictions or all these types of things that could cause me and get me into some, some trouble, I could be in workaholism. See, often we want to look at drugs, alcohol, gambling, all those things as evil. What about workaholism? How many families has that cost? So there is consequences for our actions. But as far as our eternal destination, the consequences of our, our, our fathers isn't passed on, on, on to us there. We understand that as the original sin, right? Because every single one of us has been born blind because of the sin of Adam and Eve, our first parents. And so the cause of the human condition, we know, is simply goes back to the original sin. And we, it's hard to define it any further than that, is it? How do we fully understand it? But it's not anything that you've done in your wounds. It's not anything that your parents done. You are ultimately responsible for your own sins. But here the disciples are, are, are saying that who sinned? So Jesus says the purpose for the human condition, verse 3. This is troubling, right? I mean, let's just be honest. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so the works of God might be, might be displayed in him. Sovereign grace, is it not? How, how, how does that work? Okay, let, let, me, let, let, let me get this straight, right? So a man blind from birth, right? Just so the works of God can be put on display, so Jesus can come along, however many years later, restore his sight, so God gets glory. I mean, is that what we can deduce from this? Kind of, right? It's troubling. But here it is. Herman Bevinich writes this in his condensed work of his big four-volume Reformed Dogmatics. He writes this in The Wonderful Works of God. He says... It is God's good pleasure to bring the excellencies of His triune being into manifestation in His creatures and so to prepare glory and honor for Himself in those creatures. Hmm? Romans 11.36 From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. All things. Psalm 19.1, we know it well, do we not? The heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation is glorifying God. Ephesians 1.6, that says that, that God bestows His grace upon whoever He likes for His glory. Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 4, I glorify you on earth. See, see, the first purpose for Jesus' coming was to glorify God on earth. John chapter 11, we'll get there sooner or later, the story of raising Lazarus from the grave. If you were to look at verse 14 and 15, it would say this. Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. You don't believe me? Look it up. Jesus, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. Ah, come again? 
Why, why do you say that, Jesus? For the glory of God. Verse 4, for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Is that troubling to you? Or do you find great comfort in that? And if you're not completely disturbed yet, let me continue to disturb you. And I want to look at quickly Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, and then we're going to land this plane. Exodus chapter 14. It says, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, so let me set the stage for you in my own words. So here they are. They've escaped from Pharaoh. They've gotten past all the plagues of Egypt. And they're finally, Pharaoh says, just get out of here. You've cost me my firstborn of everything. I've had it. I've done. Just leave. Just, I don't want to see you again. He's totally defeated. Pharaoh is totally spent. It's over. He's waving the white flag. It, it's done. And the people leave. Let's pick up the story there. And God says, hey Moses, tell all the people to turn back. Don't camp too far. Camp within sight of Pharaoh. Don't don't, don't get too far away. I'm not done here yet. Camp within sight of Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly throughout the land. They're wandering around the wilderness and the wilderness will do them in. That's what Pharaoh's going to think. There's no way you're going to have one to two million people wandering around in that wilderness, in that desert, and actually survive. I'll let the wilderness do them in. Let them go. That's what God says Pharaoh's going to think. So, verse 4, Exodus 14, Thus God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. My heart is hard. And he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. This they did. That's how it ends. What do we do with that? How do we understand that? Is that troubling? Is that troubling? See, sometimes we want to look at this text that is before us, this blind, this man born from birth blind. And we want to get in the weeds, you know, because we're human. And so we want to say, wow, here's this miraculous healing. We too, if we just have enough faith, can do the same thing. That's not even the point of the story. We want to get caught up in that. And sometimes I think it's because we don't want to deal with the actual truth of the passage, right? So that's the prologue for next week and for this ninth chapter. But I remember the first time that I saw, if I may say, my beloved mountains. I remember that, and if you've driven to the west, not, not, not the eastern mountains here, those are any of the western mountains. So, so, and if you've ever driven there, you know that you drive endlessly through these beautiful sage prairies and flats, right? You drive forever and ever thinking, is this really the West? Did I make a wrong turn somewhere? And then all of a sudden, off in the distance, there they are, the Rocky Mountains. They're huge. They're looming. And still you drive a couple hours till you actually get to them, right? And then you finally get to them. 
And I remember the first time I'd done that. I, I remember how small I felt just looking at them. And then I remember getting out of the truck and actually hiking up in them. And I felt very, very insignificant. Like, I don't, I'm just like a speck of dust here. But it wasn't in a negative way. I was awestruck. I was captivated. I remember how alive I felt and all my senses were on high alert. All these feelings of greatness about only the creation. And after a few days, I remember sitting up on this one little ledge specifically. And all of a sudden, my mind was totally blown as I thought about, I am this enamored. I am this awestruck. I am this captivated with the creation. What about the creator? What, what about the creator who created all these things? See, God did not only create the mountains, He also created the oceans, the prairies. He created the vastness of the universe. We cannot lose sight of the greatness of God and the holiness of God. God created Every single thing has been spoken into existence by Debar, by a word from his mouth. We must honor and glorify God in all of it. We will voluntarily honor and glorify God this side of eternity or on the other. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess kind of like a marriage, isn't it? For better, for worse. For prosperity and poverty. In sickness and in health. <laughs> oh man, oh woman, look at your life. Reflect upon your life. How do you know how God is orchestrating it for His glory? How do you know your life you are here. You are created. And all that wraps around your life for His glory. Glorify God. Glorify God. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for troubling stories. I thank You for, for stories that, um, Lord, that paint You the best that our human mind can understand for who and what and how great you truly are. And Father, as I re reflect upon some of my inconveniences and some of my joys, some of my greatest pleasures and possessions, my family, my children, my life, the good and the bad, it's all for your glory. Lord, help us to give you thanks and to glorify you in all of it. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.